Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Well, thanks for joining us today. And today we've got a really a great story to tell. Robert Graves is a successful white-collar professional by day, working as a project manager for a large multinational healthcare equipment company. Robert is an openly gay man living in Buffalo, New York. His first diagnosis, chronic clinical depression, came when he was 16 years old, though he had been battling depression since the age of nine. As he was coming out, his depression morphed into bipolar depression disorder, which when left untreated, it continued on undiagnosed until he was 44. The untreated mania manifested as an anonymous sex addiction that lasted over 20 years. And this was right in the middle of the HIV AIDS epidemic. Only after he could finally address his sex addiction with his therapist did his bipolar disorder come to light and then treatment with pharmacology that could help him end his addiction. With the help of ongoing therapy and careful medication management, Robert has evolved to lead a relatively quiet life in his 40s, where he enjoys boating, gardening, and volunteering in the community with various organizations, such as the Alzheimer's Association. He has a cat named Bacchus and a French bulldog named Lily. And through his many years of therapy, he's lived to forgive others, accept his friends and families for who they are. Now he's turned the focus inward. He has to also forgive himself for the reckless decisions that he made through those years and accept himself as he is, successful, healthy, gay man living with bipolar depression. He just released a book in May of last year, I... Rob Graves is available on Amazon today. Rob, thank you so much about joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure indeed. Well, tell me about writing the book. I mean, because I've written a a book and, you know, you start off or I started off thinking it, it would just be a fun adventure and it turned into be a whole lot more work. And at times, my my motivation would come and go. Tell me about your experience. Oh, it was the experience of a lifetime. It really was. Um, I decided about three years ago to write the book and spend uh, two of the last three years regurgitating memories, writing them down, journaling, and really kind of developing my story and what I wanted to write about. And then I just, I bit the bullet. I rented a houseboat off the coast of uh, Clearwater Beach, Florida. I lived off the grid for 10 weeks uh, with solar power and generator power on the boat and uh, just dove into every memory I had, and it was the most beautiful experience of my life. Um, It was cathartic. Um, There were times, Lee, where I would sob in in my writing because of a painful memory, 
And there were times where I would laugh out loud because this, this story reminded me of, of better times. And uh, people that I tell that I wrote uh, a full a full length memoir in in uh, ten weeks can't believe that I did it in ten weeks, but I did. I uh, I buckled down and I just it, it just came pouring out of me, and it was uh, it was the best experience of my life. Well, that's great because you know just knowing a little bit about and from a previous conversation we had about you growing up I mean you had some trauma in in that life you had a lot of uh, experience struggling with mental health and you and I both share a, a passion and that is to dissolve the stigma around mental health because so many people have a hard time acknowledging that they have mental health issues I mean Talk to me about your childhood. Well, I starting out, it was like uh, it was like everyone else. We had a house in the city. Um, I had a brother and a sister, both older. I, I'm the baby of the family. And then um, my father wanted to keep up with the Joneses, and he had to move to the suburbs. And my mother didn't want to be away from her family uh, because they were a very tight-knit group, and that was the start of their marital problems. And when we moved to the suburbs, while it was great for the kids, we had a pool across the street uh, that was managed by the town. So it was like having a pool in your backyard, but none of the maintenance. None of the work. And I was there every day. The sun was shining. Uh, and Lisa, the lifeguards got to know me, and I got to know them. And um, the one year, it was raining. The one day I did not go to the pool, they threw me a birthday party. And I wasn't wow. there. So, so, you know, they really, they really came. I, I came to rely on them. For stability, as my parents were going through the divorce, and and, and they kind of took me under their wing, and you know it was it was great. So for for five years, uh, that pool was my my safe haven, and um, then we moved. Uh, my parents divorced. We sold the house in the suburbs. Uh, we moved back into the city, into what I call in the book the slum of the city, uh, but that's all we could afford. Um, my mother uh, was bartending and waitressing to make ends meet, and um, then um, she got into a relationship uh, with a member of law enforcement, and he was abusive, and he not only was physically abusive, but mentally abusive, and turned um, what what broke the straw was he turned his physical abuse on me uh, one day and um, threw me back into a chair and then pulled out his gun and I ran out of the house to call the police 
and he beat my mom pretty pretty badly, and um, then stabbed himself and blamed my mother. So that was traumatic for her, and traumatic for all of us. Um, so back in then, back in back in the eighties when this happened, uh, it was always the woman's fault. You know, and he was a member of law enforcement. So when the police came, they just got him out of the house, sent him on his way. No charges filed, you know, nothing, nothing uh, legally took place against him. And my mother left him, left the bar where she met him. And um, we lived on $140 a week. Um, so we were, we were quite poor, um, you know, with rent and utilities and everything that, that ate up a large amount of my mother's income that we received from my father. So we, we relied on school meals and, um, the, 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 uh, eating breakfast and lunch at school. And so she went back to school. She she didn't um she didn't let her she she pulled her bootstraps up and went back to school and got her degree in cosmetology and got us out of the slum and got us a great apartment and then um her alcoholism took over and so that kind of um that kind of reared its ugly head after she had tr- she had worked so hard for so long to get us out of poverty, only to turn to alcohol uh, for her stability. And um, I write about it in the book uh, because it was uh, traumatic on the family. And um, then. Uh, hit rock bottom and uh, you know I mentioned that I sobbed while writing the book and the reason I sobbed was because my mother I came home to find my mother sobbing on the couch one day and she confided in me that uh, she had to have an abortion Um, and I was only 14 at the time and much too immature to comprehend the severity of what she had confided in me. But I held her. She cried, and uh, I didn't know what to do other than hold her. Uh, And that was her rock bottom, and she got sober after that. Um, But I I have one thing to say. I, I hate to interrupt, but she was an amazing lady, and I can't let that the moment pass without making that comment. No, she is an amazing lady. And she really, every time she got knocked down, she got back up. And uh, that's where I get my strength from. Um, So she is an amazing person. Um, And I love her to death. And now she is battling Alzheimer's. So unfortunately, she couldn't. She can't read the book. She can't. 
she can't read any longer. Um, but um, she is. You can read um, it to her. I can read it to her. Yeah, yeah, I can. Um, but that was the that was the darkest point in writing the book was coming to terms with that memory and um, mourning the loss of my sibling that I that never. Uh, came to fruition so that was very difficult and very um, I never realized how much anger I had Lee um, until I wrote the book and writing the words on paper writing it down was so freeing and so uh, I said this before it was very cathartic uh, and I'll say it again, it was just an amazing experience. It released me from all of that anger. Um, so I learned to accept her. And most importantly, I forgave her, which I had not realized I had not done. I had I have years of therapy under my belt, and I've gone through this with my therapist. But I realized I never forgave her. And in realizing that, it was time for me to forgive her. Um, forgive her for the mistakes that she made that she didn't have control over. She did the best she could based on how she was raised. You know, and so it was... Uh, it was beautiful. I'll just well, say you that. Know, forgiveness is, is something that's really difficult for all of us. But Robert, what I have found is that it's easier to forgive other people than it is to forgive ourselves. And, you know, when have you been able to forgive yourself? Because you went through some pretty reckless years. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, I went through years of horrible promiscuity, uh, anonymous sex at the height of the AIDS epidemic. Um, because I was so ashamed, I knew something was wrongly. I knew there was, but I was so ashamed because there's so much stigma. I knew there was something outside of my depression because I was manic all the time. I didn't know what it was though. And I just went on thinking it was normal. And years went past, and I just thought, no, this is normal. And it wasn't. And the shame that I felt, I went deeper and deeper into uh, my mania, and my, my addiction just went from bad to worse. So how did you figure, how did you figure out it wasn't normal? Because you'd been, you'd been engaging in that behavior for a few years, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I was engaging in this reckless behavior. It started off once or twice a year and then a couple times a month and it just slowly escalated into daily 
visits to the adult theater or the adult uh, arcade where men go to have anonymous sex with other men. And it got to the point where I would go to the arcade, go home, get online, cruise the internet for, for anonymous sex, and do it all over again the next day. And just, it was a constant cycle. I would leave party. I'd be having a good time with my friends. I'd get bored. I'd be like, I'd go to the arcade. I'd go to the adult theater. Because I just needed that high. It's just like a drug addict needing his heroin. My heroin was anonymous sex. And I realized years into it that it wasn't it wasn't normal. But I kept doing it. Because I didn't have a I didn't have a way out. I didn't know what to do with it. And it wasn't until about four and a half years ago where um, the antiviral drug known um, as PrEP, it's, uh, it was the, the, the name brand, I believe, was Truvada at the time. Uh, or, or I could be wrong. I don't, I, don't, don't quote me on that. Um, but there was uh, an anti-HIV drug that came out, and I wanted to go on it. And my, my primary care doctor, I went to him, and I had been a patient of his for years. since I was, I was with the practice since I was five years old. Now, the doctor had retired, and another doctor took over. But this new doctor, who I had been seeing for, for years and years, wouldn't prescribe it to me. He said he didn't know enough about it. And I thought that was horribly irresponsible of him because it's his responsibility to learn what their patient, his patient needs. And so I went to an LGBT uh, practice. I left that medical practice, found a new doctor that specializes in the care of LGBT men and women. And that saved my life because not only did they put me on prep, but they asked me the questions that my other doctor never did about my sexual history. And when that came to light and I had to answer those questions about my history, I realized that in there, that it wasn't right because I couldn't answer. I literally didn't know how many partners I had had in the last 30 days when I went for my, when I went for my appointment to, to be screened for prep. They ask you everything under the sun about your sexual history. And I couldn't answer them. I couldn't be honest with Emily because I just lost count. Well, is and, that a wake-up call for you? Oh, my God, yes. 
And that's when I said, okay, Rob, it's time to get back, back into therapy. And I did research and I found a therapist that specialized in LGBT uh, health for uh, men and women. You know, and this is, you're making such an important point right there for our listeners. There are people, there are doctors, there are therapists, there are resources out there that are, that understand what you have going on. Not everybody may, um, not, not everybody understands the LGBTQ community, but there are resources out there that do. How do, if somebody wanted to find a resource. I mean, how do you find a resource like that? Well, I I went to my insurance company's website and searched LGBTQ under, there you the, go. under the search engine. There, they had a provider search engine. It says find a doctor. And in the search engine, I just put in LGBTQ and a very short list came up, and I found uh, a psychiatrist um, and nurse practitioner that specialized uh, in uh, men's health, and How- and it was a godsend. Um, therapists need to understand that they play such a pivotal role in their patients' lives that it's not just about documenting and prescribing medication. It's about building trust, and it's about building a relationship. I've had two therapists in my life, Lee, that really, really stand out. George, who treated me from the time I was uh, 16 to the time I was 25. He died unexpectedly, and it devastated me. I dedicated the book to him because he taught me the fundamentals of forgiveness and acceptance. And I didn't realize he taught me those things until much later in life. But he would interject his own personal struggles so I could see him as a person and not just as a therapist. He didn't just sit behind the desk and take notes. He was interactive. And that's what my current therapist is like. Jenny, she's amazing. And she's interactive and she lets me know what I'm doing right, what I'm doing wrong, and she does it in a way that's personable, yet doesn't cross a line. I understand therapists are saying, oh, there's a line you can't, you can't be personal with your patients. Yes, you can. You just got to understand where that line is, because it is a very fine line, and not cross it. Well, and there are times as a therapist, I would just like to add, there are times that maybe you might cross it and there are times that you would not. 
Right. Right. So, so I mean, but I, I'm so happy to hear that you've had such great experience with therapists because that, and it sounds like to me that's that was your salvation. It was my salvation. It. Uh, she, I was able after a couple of episode, a couple of appointments with Jenny. I was really able to open up. I talked to her about what I had experienced at Evergreen, uh, going on prep. Uh, Evergreen is the name of the the provider, uh, the the group practice name. Gotcha. Um, and um, so when I went to Evergreen, uh, they got me on prep. Then everything was great, and I was seeing primary. She was by. I changed primary care doctors, and then got into therapy. And saw Jenny, um, and told Jenny what I had experienced at uh, at Evergreen, and how it was such a wake up call for me. And that is, you know, that is such we, a great story. We've got about a couple of minutes before we go to break, and you know, okay. I'm just going to ask you to stop and reflect on when you were looking for Jenny or any, you know, a good therapist. How did what advice can you give our listeners? Those that are thinking maybe they want a therapist, but they don't know what to look for. They don't know how to do it. What could you share with them? Well, I had years of bad therapy, too. So I knew what worked for me and what didn't work for me. So I made a list. I made a list of what I wanted. uh, And I wrote it out. Um. I find that writing writing things makes it. How do I want to say this? It puts it into the universe in a way that you can't take it back when you write something down. So I wrote down all my goals, what I wanted to get out of therapy, and and it's okay if you find a therapist that you don't like to say, you know what. This isn't going to work for me. And go to the next one. It's okay to say, I'm not okay with 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 it. So, well, just being brave enough to do that, you know, can be very hard because there's yeah. a power relationship in therapy, and yeah. there shouldn't be, but but there is, and and so that is just. That's great advice for for people out there that, you know, it is okay to not be okay. And it is okay to determine who you want to share your journey with. And if you can't feel good about and look forward to and feel accountable to the therapist that you're working with, that doesn't mean it's a bad therapist, just means it may not, just not a good fit for you. And right. that's one thing that I think people don't understand with therapy, that it is all about a fit. We're going to take a break, but stay with us, listeners, because we've got a lot more to talk about after break. We'll be back after these messages.
It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. The New York Times reported that the benefits of eating a solid breakfast are hard to dispute. They cited emerging research that suggests another advantage to consistently eating breakfast is a reduced risk of type 2 diabetes. A study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition showed that people who skipped breakfast on a regular basis had a 21% higher risk of developing diabetes. We know that those who omit breakfast suffer setbacks in memory, mood, and energy levels. And eating the all-important first meal of the day is thought to stabilize blood sugar throughout the day. So choose a healthy and nutritious breakfast to start your day and to decrease your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. It's merging Which U.S. state would you guess has the fastest talkers? Recent research by analytics company MarchX revealed that the nation's fastest talkers come from Oregon, Minnesota, Massachusetts, Kansas, and Iowa. What about New York, you ask? New York ranked near the bottom at 38, but New Yorkers do use more words. A New Yorker will use 62% more words than someone from Iowa who have the same basic conversation. What's another word for fast-talking? Tachylaya. America's slow-spoken or tardiloquent talkers were from North Carolina, Alabama, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Mississippi. What's a word for someone who likes to say the same thing over and over? A batologist. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So listeners that were listening to us before the break, we were talking about how to find a good therapist. And and Rob, are there any closing comments you'd like to make on that subject? Yeah, Lee, I just want your listeners to know that when you find the right therapist, you'll know in your heart of hearts. You will have that connection. And it'll do wonders for you. That's, you know, those are very powerful words because I think, you know, when you connect with somebody, you know, you can make eye contact with somebody and you can feel their energy and that energy resonates with your energy. So it's, it's just all about finding the right energy, right? It is. It is. You're absolutely right. And it's so interesting to me because, you know, at the Brain Performance Center, we work with the brain and we work with the electrical waves, which is nothing but frequencies. We're all about frequencies and frequencies are energy. And, you know, how you how you connect and how you get inspiration and how you get that head in the right space. And I do a, a consultation with everybody complimentary before anything else, because if I'm going to tell you that we can help you, I've got to know that. And I've got to believe that. But in that consultation, you know, it's, I approach it, the brain's either regulated or dysregulated. It's all there is to it. And, you know, when you talk about mindset, 
you took an approach that really changed your whole mindset. Talk to us about that. Well, you know, I, I needed to do something different in my life. I was out of control. And it's, it's only um, by the grace of God that I am healthy. Um, and I know that. And I know I knew that I was playing Russian roulette with my life. Literally Russian roulette. I was one bullet away from death. And um, when I decided to get healthy um, and I realized I was bipolar uh, and, 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 and that came to light and I went on uh, a series of different medications to, to, to treat my bipolar disorder, um, not only did I use pharmacology, I used therapy, and I did a lot of meditation. I spent a lot of time alone thinking about my life. And a lot of time just staring. You know, meditation doesn't have to be sitting in a circle around a bunch of incense. It can be simply sitting on the couch in a quiet room contemplating. And that's what I did. I just turn piano music on and and listen to my thoughts and really come to terms with what I was trying to accomplish. And I formulated a game plan that I was no longer going to be ashamed. I was no longer going to let the stigma ruin my life. And I was going to do something about it. And I am now working very hard to fight the stigma and change the way people think about mental health. Because it is that stigma that prevents people from getting healthy. And Boy, that's the truth. And here's a little piece of trivia for you. Did you know the average amount of time that people struggle with a mental health issue before they get help. And I'll give you some, A is three to six months. B is a year. C is three to five years. And D is 10 years. What do you think the answer is? I'm going to say 10 years. You got it. A decade. That is such a long time to be suffering and to be in pain. And the reason that they do, it's way too long. Three months is way too long because it's okay to not be okay. But the reason that they do is, I mean, there's three levels of stigma that we have to deal with. And some of it comes from us, comes from inside. And oftentimes that's the biggest step to, to get over. But then there's mm-hmm. social stigma as well. You work in a large organization. You work as a project manager. I mean, I'm sure at some point in your career, you've heard somebody say, I don't want that person to be on my team. You know, they get so anxious that they never can stay the whole day. I mean, that stigma that comes from, from an organizational level mm-hmm. and And all of that is out there. 
and we we have got to do exactly what you're doing. You're sharing your story. And people love stories. And I mean, if he can do it, gosh, after everything that he he did, and I'm not I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I'm just sharing some chit chat that may come from other people's right. minds. If he can do it, I can do it. And that is the whole premise of my book. I take I, I don't pretend to preach. I just tell my story and if it works for you, that's great. Uh if I can do it, I just show people that I I did it. I got healthy. And and, and now I'm successful uh because I got healthy. Um I've lost jobs. I've lost many jobs. I write about it in the book. You know, I lost many a job because I was not healthy. I was that person who would go into a rage in the office. I was that person not performing because my mental health prevented me from doing my job in the way that I needed to do my job. And it was only until I got healthy that I realized that, wow, I, 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 I really struggled and I didn't realize how bad I struggled until I got healthy. Well, and when you say healthy, do you, when you say healthy, did you find peace? I found, yeah, yeah, I am, um, I have no anger in my heart anymore. So uh, I had dinner with an old boss and an old colleague um, a couple weeks ago. And he was like, Rob, you're so different. What? There's something different about you. He, and um, he's like, when we worked together 10 years ago, you were so angry all the time. You And, and he... he you were an amazing employee. He was my boss. And he was like, you were an amazing employee with the customers. But when you get back to the office, you were such a raging lunatic. And I don't see that in you anymore. I don't see that in your eyes anymore. And I'm like, I have literally changed my whole perspective on, on life. By writing this book, I have found the ultimate peace and I am no longer uh, I, I no longer have anger in my heart I bet that feels pretty good it's an amazing feeling and, and anger if is I exhausting express, it is exhausting it is and if I can share my story through my book or through doing talks with, with you that if it, if I help one person, then then I've done my my I've done my duty. I've paid it forward. Well, and I think that you know nothing resonates in our heart more than hearing somebody else that can't maybe did some things worse than we did, um, or it, you know inspired us to just own up to the bad that we that we did. I mean, and, and there's no good or bad, but there's there's no good or bad people. There's bad actions that we take, 
and I think that just being able to own that and say, okay, and you know, yeah, I made those decisions to have anonymous sex once a day. I did that for X amount of time. And that could be so freeing because you, you walked away from that. You left that behind. Are you ever worried that you're going to do that again? It's a constant struggle. Um, I've been celibate since I wrote the book. Um, so it's been 18 months. And it's been the best 18 months of my life. I can honestly say. I can focus on what I want, um, which is a relationship with uh, with a man that knows who I am and yet still loves me for who I am. And so um, someone asked me out just uh, a couple weeks ago. I said, okay, I'll go out with you, but you got to do something for me first. And I'm like, you got to go to the bookstore, buy my book, read it, and then let me know where we stand. And he still wants to go out. So we're going to, we're, we're going to see that chapter is writing itself right now, Lee. I think that's, I think that's amazing. I mean, gee, Rob, you could have given him the book, but you made him, well, told him to go to the bookstore. Girl's got to eat, Lee. I'm trying to, I, <laughs> oh, but I think that's an amazing story. And, and, you know, it's just a qualifier. It's just saying, okay, I want to go out with you, but, you know, maybe if you know everything there is to know about Rob, you might not want to go out with me. And I think that's, I think that's being very respectful. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't want to get into a relationship with someone who doesn't understand my life's journey and my book talks about my life, life my life's journey in in, 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 in in all the good and the bad and all the and all you laugh with me you cry with me you and you'll blush uh, it's uh, I, I don't pull any punches and um, I want people to know who I really who I was and where I came from yeah. because it just goes to it's testament to to who I am today. Well, and I think that that being transparent, honestly, is my goal in every relationship that I have is transparency, because it just it, it makes life a whole lot easier for one thing, and it makes things just smooth you know there's I can't I can't get into the little white lies because then I got to remember what I said and right and that's a lot of work and I was constantly oh my god constantly with the white lies of where you were going and what you were doing and why you were leaving the party early and oh I didn't feel good or and it was all just to go to the arcade or to the theater and it was all just to, to hide my addiction and 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 you know the, the 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 best part about writing the book were the reaction from my friends and my family could not have been better 
they they apologized. Some friends actually apologized and said, we never knew you were in so much pain, and we are sorry for not recognizing it. And that meant, that meant a tremendous amount to me. And um, it wasn't, it's, it's, it's not there, it's not that I needed an apology, but it was validation that they, they truly understood what I had gone through. And well, still, and it's recognition, though, that, you know, that recognized and respected me for telling the story, for being so vulnerable, for not hiding anything. I don't hide anything in the book. Well, I think that that's you've done a great job of sharing your your the good, the bad, and the ugly. No other way to say it. No and other no, no, there's not. And so, um, when you think about all this, you know, I know you wrote the book to share that information that could help other people. What other suggestions do you have or advice? You know. Um, do you have any advice that you'd like to share? Close your eyes and visualize someone in sitting in the same seat, wearing the same shoes that you were five or six years ago. What would you tell them? What would I tell them? I would tell them that it gets better, that it's going to be a lot of work, but the work and the reward is so worth it. The, the, the that... purging, the purging of your demons, and and that's kind of a harsh word, demons. But um, the purging of your demons is so great. It's such an amazing feeling um, that. I only wish that I could bottle what I felt writing that book on that boat in Florida, bottle it up and sell it because it's powerful, Lee. It is so powerful that I can't, I have a hard time putting it into words. But well, it is worth I can it. feel it. I can feel in your in your in your voice. I can feel it. So my goal is to take this show on the road, um, and I, I can't bottle it up, but I can I can go to the hills and and I can proclaim. And, and that is my goal, is to become a public speaker and mental health advocate. Because I really believe that we have to fight, as a, you and I together can fight the stigma of mental health, uh, the mental health stigma in this country. Well, and, that's, and, and that's really my goal. That's, and that's that is the goal, goal that I share with you. I am in the 
finishing up a PhD and I've got this PhD for one reason and that is to create or I'm getting this PhD for one reason and that is to create social change around mental health. Mental health is brain health. Brain health Uh impacts your physical health. I mean, anybody thinks they have something wrong with their heart, they will be in that doctor's office within a week. And And you know what? Let me take that a step further. Because not only are they going to be in in that that, that doctor's office, that that is a beautiful doctor's office with glass walls and marble tile. And you go to the... You you go to the mental health, and you're 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 lucky if you have shag carpet from 1979. It's such there's these beautiful cancer centers, these beautiful heart centers and cath labs. There is nothing comparable for mental health, you know, and that is a shame. It is a shame that we are still dealing with a payer system from 1950. Well, and nothing made me happier that when you said that you got on your insurance website and, you know, to find, it sounds like your insurance recognized mental health. So many companies, if you, there's such an inequity about, if you look at their budget for physical health and you look at their budget for mental health, we're not talking apples and apples here. We're mm-hmm. talking an no. apple and a peanut. Absolutely. And the disparity is disgusting. It's deplorable and the way we treat our mental health uh, compared to the way we treat diabetes or cancer or any other uh, health-related, you know, bodily health-related issue versus a mental health related issue. It really is it it really makes me mad. Well, it makes me sad because there's you know there's no reason for us to continue. If we do not and when I say we, I mean globally. If globally mm-hmm. we do not the leaders and the in the world don't stop and think about the importance of mental health and if the pandemic has taught us anything one single thing it to me it stressed how important your mental health is mm-hmm. and we've had that when you get isolated when you can't go you lose your community you can't go to work you can't go to, mm-hmm. couldn't go to the gym for 6 weeks can't go to church you know there's so many things that were taken away from us that impacted us emotionally and mentally. And I've seen it. I've seen it in my practice, the Brain Performance Center. I've seen people come back that normally they come, we do our work. And I, the only way that I really hear from them is through a referral. But they've come back because it's, they said, you know what? My mental health was, was impacted so negatively and I know better. I'm not going to ignore that and close my eyes and hope it goes away, you know, so I am back. And, and that has brought me more pleasure, not just the fact that they're back, but the fact that they, that level of education occurred within them. You know, I don't, I don't have to live like this. I don't have to let things go from not so good to worse 
to bad. So I think that everything and any way, you know, we can normalize mental health is a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I truly, truly do. And I think that one of the best ways is when you know somebody's not okay, just going up, give them a big old hug or high five or whatever it is you want to do. I believe, though, the power of touch is is so strong. You know, just mm-hmm. and tell them it's okay to not be okay. And because we're all going to be there at some point in our life. We're just, and if you're not there today, appreciate that. But don't think that you'll never be there again. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so important just to recognize when you're not okay, to take the steps to get you to the point where you are okay. And, 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 and work through that. And, whether it's meditation or pharmacology or whatever your path is, follow that path. Well, and, you know, and and really, Rob, that's why I wrote the book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On, because mm-hmm. I mentioned those consultations I do. People would come in and, I, you know, I'd listen to them. I'd say, wow, I, I sounds like you've got some depression going on. Oh, no, 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 no. And I'd see they're looking at the floor. Or I'd say, wow, you know, sounds like you're a little anxious. And I'd see those shoulders come up and turn into earrings. Oh, no, no, I'm not anxious. And because they didn't feel like it was okay to be experiencing that depression or anxiety. And that's what really, you know, prompted me. And I thought, if nothing else, if I can just create the understanding with folks it's just depression it's just anxiety it doesn't define who you are it doesn't define what life has to offer you and that was my motivation we've got a couple minutes left and and i know that your book can be found on amazon is there anywhere else do you have a website does the book have a website yeah, the book does have a website. It's the title of the book, irobgraves.com. And there are links. Um, you can learn about me. You can contact me if you uh, want to reach out and connect with me. Um, and there's also a link to my local bookstore where you can buy it. And they'll, uh, uh, if you don't want to buy on Amazon, you can buy it from the local independent bookstore that is carrying my book here in Buffalo, and they'll ship it to you anywhere in the country. That is fabulous, and it's so nice to know. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to get it, and your local your local community is supporting you. That 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 makes me feel so good for you, yeah. and they should. I mean, I Rob Graves is got to be a great book. Rob Graves, I can't thank you enough for coming on today and being so open and so honest and and just making it such an easy subject to talk about because sex addiction, bipolar, you know, your mom, what you went through with it, those aren't easy things. So kudos to you. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. 
Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Thank you.